So as you're making your way back to your seats, um, Beth was just informing me that uh, the ministry that we have here at the church where so many gather on Saturdays, we feed the community. I think it's one Saturday a month. Uh, we fed 950, we, we gave out 950 plates this year uh, in that ministry. So <laughs> praise the Lord for that. I also was talking to some of the guys who came back from Jolo yesterday, um, uh, led by the Blackwell family, and uh, I heard it was a phenomenal trip, and you guys ministered to hundreds of families up there, from what I understand, giving out all kinds of different stuff and just trying to bless the community, and that's one of the most impoverished communities uh, in the United States, and so praise God for you guys and uh, everything that you're doing over there, praise the Lord. Uh, and I just had a dear a sister back here ask me to pray for her mother, Vicki. We've been praying for her, and she just had a fall and um, busted her head open and, and broke some bones, a tailbone, I think. So uh, pray for Vicki uh, and uh, that she would uh, continue healing process and that the doctors would be her. And I want to say today that um, Brother Claude, uh, that's been here and so faithful for so long, he's moving up north to be with his sister and to help take care of her and just want to tell you, Claude, we love you. I've considered you a brother uh, for a long time now. We sure are going to miss you, brother. I love you. I love you. So we're going to be praying for you. And, and uh, let me ask real quick before we continue on. So we're going to pray for Vicky. Anybody else need prayer? And we'll pray, and then we're going to get into the Word. Anybody else? What you got? Our brother here is having surgery Tuesday. He had a shoulder replacement. And uh, it didn't go too well. His shoulder keeps popping out. So I talked to uh, him this morning, and we're going to continue to pray for him. But he's going to be having a surgery on Tuesday. So let's remember to spe specifically pray there. Okay, pray for me, Mom. She's got slip disc in her back. We'll definitely pray for her, too. Yeah, he had the, he had the flu, and uh, I think it's kind of going through his family, isn't it? Or a couple of them had it. So all the kids, so pray for Brother Chris Price and his family. Anybody else? Definitely. Pray for safe travels for our sister going back to Michigan. Mike Ford. Okay, we'll pray for Mike, too. Ava, yeah, that's a... Uh, tragic story so we'll pray but it's brought in a lot of inspiration I think too so we'll pray for Ava all right well let's pray I definitely will not remember all of those if you know my memory is horrible but God heard every one of them and the ones that you guys didn't mention I know that there's lots of prayer requests in here uh, so let's pray and I'll remember as many as I can and just know the Lord knows them Lord Jesus we just come before you right now and first of all God we just pray that you would glorify yourself in this room in our hearts Lord, we do lift up Vicki as she uh, has taken this fall and is struggling with these things. God, that you would bring healing to her body. Lord, we pray for Mike Ford and the issues that he's going through. God, I, I thank you for all the praises for so many meals being given out and uh, for these missionaries going to Jolo and, and, and being used by you to bless these families, God. I just pray that you'd continue to bless their hearts by the power of the Spirit. 
Lord, we, we do pray for Ava, and we pray for Mima, and we pray for all of these different sicknesses, for Chris and his family, God. For our brother back here who's going to have another shoulder surgery, God, we pray that you'd be with the doctors and surgeons and that they would do their very best work, God. We know you bring healing and that you, uh, uh, that you make whole in, in many different ways, God, modern medicine and doctors and technology and, and all, all types of different ways, God. We pray for our sister back here who is going to be going back to Michigan and fighting uh, treacherous roads and snow and ice, and we pray for safety for her, that she would make it home um, and it would be a safe trip. Uh, Lord God, for any that I forgot or any that were not mentioned, Lord, I'm sure there are tons of unspoken. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would, storms, and yes, those who have been uh, tragically hammered by these tornadoes and devastation of property and, and loss of life, God, we pray, Lord, that you would be with the families who lost loved ones and who lost their houses and, and uh, their businesses and things of that nature, God. Just please be in those situations and somehow uh, that you would glorify yourself, Lord, and, and make a way where there seems to be no way. Just be with us in every way, God, as we try our best to glorify you in a fast-paced world that's doing everything it can to drag us away. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. And the title of today's sermon is, Appearances are Often Deceptive. Appearances are often deceptive. And the subtitle would be, The Heart Never Lies. Appearances are often deceptive, but the heart never lies. It can't. It can't hide from God. The heart never lies uh, when the Lord is the one asking the questions. This morning, I want to talk to you about true worship, and I want to talk to you about what Jesus Christ was doing when he came to the earth. What Jesus Christ was doing when he came to the earth. So this month, we will celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God became a man and walked among us, uh, and he came to do the, the redemptive work that his father had sent him to do, that he volunteered himself to do uh, to glorify God in heaven. And so this morning as we think about the virgin birth and we think about the Christmas season where we celebrate the incarnation and the coming of Messiah, the coming of the one who would bring redemption by paying our sins uh, that we could not pay. Uh, I want to ask the question this morning as we, uh, as we look at this story in uh, Luke chapter 21, what, at least one aspect, there's many different things that Christ did when he came to the earth, what was Christ doing, when we zoom out a little bit, what was Christ doing when he came to the earth? And I want to say that Christ was putting wrong things right, that he was bringing perspective to what creation is for, what you were created for, what I was created for, uh, to bring back into view what he had designed this creation to be like from the very beginning. So he, think about it this way, Jesus Christ, when he made his way into Jerusalem in the point of history where he 
became a man, there was a point in time where he decided that he would break into human history, that he would break into this world, and that which was divine took on a human nature, that the God-man who had existed from eternity past, Jesus, the his divine nature, Jesus who is God, had existed from eternity past. He had no beginning, became a man in his human nature. Jesus, the man, had a beginning, and he came and dwelt among his creation. And the God who existed from eternity past, God the Son, took on human flesh, became a man, and dwelt among us for certain purposes. This morning I want to ask a couple of questions about that purpose and to see how that might bring into view who Christ is, who we are, how we should respond to what he's done, and maybe to bring clarity to how we are to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would, stand to your feet for the reading and the hearing of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 41 of chapter 20, and I'm going to read through chapter 21 verse 6 and it reads this way but he said to them how can they say that Christ that the Christ is David's son for David himself says in the book of Psalms the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool David thus calls him Lord so how is he his son and in the hearing of all the people he said to his disciples beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of, her poverty, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Appearances are often deceptive. So I want to note a few things in the passages that we've just looked at here. And I want to see if I can bring some relevance to our particular context in which we live now I don't mean that I'm going to make the text relevant the text is relevant I'm going to try my best to show you how it's relevant in our time and hopefully along the way we'll see some pitfalls that we can avoid in our own, that we can avoid in our own lives so the first thing I want to note here are three I want to look at three different uh, things in these this section of scripture I want to look at the scribes I want to look at the poor widow, and I want to look at the temple. And I want to ask this question. What was Jesus Christ doing when he came? What was Jesus Christ doing when he came? So first, let's take a look at the scribes. So we come out of this section in Luke chapter 20. I read a few of those uh, verses for you just to kind of grab some context as we go through to see what 
what is Jesus addressing when he talks about the widow and the mite or the copper coins? Why, where did that story come from? Is it just out of left field for no real reason? No, I don't think that's the case. I think it's a story that's lodged in a greater context. And he's, he is making a point when he tells this story about this little old lady who brings this small offering in the face of these massive donations from these scribes, these leaders of the community, these thought leaders, these uh, rich and influential, powerful men that would come and, and they would make these long prayers and they were highly exalted by the people. What, what context is that in? Well, I'm not going to go back and read it all, but I would even back up a little bit further to verse 27 of chapter 20. And these Sadducees, these scribes, these high and lofty teachers of the day were a contentious group. They were false teachers promoting the idea that there was no resurrection, promoting the idea that uh, those who died were just dead. There was no resurrection. And as they were being contentious, Jesus Christ was answering them and he was giving uh, the truth that had always been revealed in Scripture, and that was the resurrection of the dead. And he did it in such a way that was so authoritative that he would continually silence the, those who would object to his teaching, or they would try to trap him in the questions that they ask. And so we have him engaged with these religious people, okay? These religious, authoritative, well-dressed uh, lots of money, high in position, these, these very influential, powerful religious people. That's the context. Jesus Christ is engaged with these, and he is dismantling the way that they think and the claims that they make. Okay, So that's the context in which we find ourselves. And I will point really quickly, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we get there, his pointing to the temple as, as all, his hear, all of his hearers, they're, they're there in the synagogue, they're there and, and they're in view of the temple. He's having this discussion with the high and exalted religious leaders of the day who were wealthy and had, had much power. They're there in view of the temple and he is point, they're, they're in awe of the majesty of the temple. But they're in awe of the outward adornment of the temple and not what the temple was actually about, which was God dwelling in the midst of his people, that they could come to him at the temple and have their sins uh, dealt with in a foreshadowing way. But the, the Messiah had come to which all of those acts pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. All of, those, all of those sacrifices, all of the high priestly systems, the Levitical law, it all pointed to the one that was standing here, and they had missed that because they were looking at the outward adorning of the temple. They had missed it. They had completely missed what it was all about. And so Jesus here is doing something in this context. Think about it this way. He's there, he's got a crowd, he's got an audience, and they're common people. He's talking to these common people, and he is talking to them, and there's also there these Sadducees, these scribes, these influential religious leaders who had separated themselves from the commoners. They were so much better. 
We see this time and time and time and time again in the ministry of Jesus. And he says, don't be like the Pharisees who stand way over here and they, oh, thank you, Lord, that I am not like. So they, they're there all the time. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, these religious leaders are always separating themselves from these old common people over here. So Jesus here in the audience of both of these, he's talking to the crowds, but he is in conflict and he's in contention with these leaders, these religious leaders. And he is in, and this, this conversation, this contention is going on in the sight of the temple and the synagogue is there. So this is the setting that we're in. And so Jesus is kind of tearing down their wrong ideas and their false doctrine and, and he's making things right and he's doing it with power and authority. That's where we come in in verse 41. What he is going to do here is he's going to challenge their idea of what they think the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the books of wisdom are teaching. He's going to say, you think one thing, but I'm telling you, you have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, here we are in verse 41 says this, but he said to them, how can, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now we don't need to get it wrong here. We don't need to understand. Well, what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus is not from the line of David, that Jesus is not one of David's sons. And all that means is, is that, Dave, that Jesus is in the lineage of David. But we know that Jesus was in the lineage of David, that we know that he is the son of David. So why is he calling into contention this aspect of being the son of David and their understanding of this passage? What Jesus is doing here is saying, he's looking at these scribes and these these religious leaders, and he's saying, you have no idea the complexities and the simplicities that are found in the scriptures of the Old Covenant. What you fail to realize is, and I would draw in John chapter 5, that all you search these, you think that you have an understanding of these, but what you fail to realize is that all of these are about me. And this is coming right out of a discussion where he's saying that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that he is the God of the living, not the dead. Because they were denying that resurrection was even possible. And so Jesus looks at them and says that it's proof in the Old Testament. The Old Covenant proves that resurrection is legit. Because when God spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was speaking to those who were living because God is the God of the living and not the dead. Now you see it now. See, they had read those old covenant scriptures and that they had missed a vital truth that was being taught in those scriptures. And what Jesus is saying to them now is the way that you got that wrong, you're getting this wrong too is that Jesus, who is the Christ, he's speaking of himself, he's saying, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What Jesus is saying here is that you think you understand the scriptures, but you have no idea what they actually teach. Now, we could go into a long, drawn-out, 
teaching about how Jesus Christ is God. He is the Lord. And we could, we could do some uh, word searches and some word studies to show here that when it says the Lord said to my Lord, that that is the language, the same words used to express Yahweh. And when he is quoting uh, David here in this psalm, he is actually proving that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, that Jesus is the God of David. But that's not what this is about. We could easily do that because these verses do prove that Jesus, though he descends from David, is the God of David, bringing the idea together that the eternal God that has existed from eternity past, God the Son, who was existed before David and was David's God. He was the one that David was speaking about when he said, the Lord said to my Lord, God, he worshiped, David himself worshiped Jesus. But at the same time, one would come later from the lineage of David through David's line, and that eternal God, the, the Son of God who existed from eternity past, would become a man and be born into the lineage of David. So he was both descended from the line of David, David's son, and he was Yahweh. We could do all of that, and that's all there. But that's not what Jesus is doing here, I'm convinced. The whole point of Jesus saying this was, he's looking at the scribes, these religious, lofty, powerhouse leaders, and he's saying, you don't have a clue. You have no idea. You think that you are this majestic group that has everything right, and you look down your nose on these common people, and you, you lift yourselves above these, but you have missed the very fabric of what reality is about. You have missed the whole show. You have missed the forest for the trees. You're, you think that you're something. So, number one, speaking of the scribes, those that seem magnificent among us can escape the true test, and that is the test of the heart. You see, these scribes were not worried about God. They were not worried about the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not worried about the truth of the matter. They were worried about that which would benefit themselves. Now, I want you to set that into a context that we're in today. How many people are out to get a title instead of out to minister for the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ said, those who are least among you will be the greatest, and those who are greatest will be the least. Those who seek to gain their life will lose it, but those who lose their life on my behalf will gain it. You see, these scribes and these religious leaders, they had these ideas and these teachings that would set them apart as if they were the only ones that had this type of truth and this type of power. But Jesus here is saying that not only are you wrong about resurrection, but you're wrong about the Messiah and who he would be. You're wrong about so much. You have missed everything. Let's read on in verse 45, and he's going to bring out a little bit more of a distinction between these scribes. And this, is, this section right here get, helped me to see what the other section was teaching and what it was pulling from. Remember, 
chapters and chapter headings and even verses and all of these distinctions is a later addition to the text of Scripture. The original Scriptures had no verses, they had no chapters, they had no chapter headings. It was one long letter, okay? So these can be helpful, but sometimes they can be kind of tough because they show divisions where it's questionable whether a division should be there. I don't see that there should be a division right here. Now, the, think of the chapters and verses as like addresses. We want to find somewhere. You know, I live at 105 West Rutherford Street. The text here is found at Luke 21, verse 1. You see what I'm saying? So this is, this is what these were added for, so it's helpful. But it's not always the most beneficial. I see here. Listen to what he's saying. So he comes out of this teaching and rebuke, really, of their understanding of the resurrection. Then he points out an area where they thought they had it right, but they had missed the whole thing in who Jesus Christ or who the Messiah would be, that he would be not only the son of David, but he would also be God, the God-man. They had completely missed this in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 45. And in the hearing of the people, he said to his disciples, so here he is talking in, in contention with these scribes, the high and lofty leaders who stand up, in, up, up above everyone else. And while he's contending with them, he stops addressing them for a moment and he turns and he looks at the people. Okay, you, you're seeing this now. The beautiful majestic temple is here with adorned with all of these beautiful stones. Here are the scribes. Beautiful and majestic, adorned with all of these stones. Literally, some of them, the high priest would have had these stones, and they would have had these robes on, and these huge crowns, and these different things on their head, and they would have been, you see this, this picture here. So all of this magnificence, all of this wealth, all of this beauty, all of this high and lofty lifted upness from the outward adorning of these two things, the temple and now these scribes and these people of power. He turns from them and he starts to address the common man, the common woman. Listen to what he says. And he's already torn them down, down about their resurrection theology. He's torn them down about their messianic, who the Messiah would be, that, that understanding that they had. And he says this, while they're still, there's no indication in the text that he left, that he went anywhere else. He stops addressing them and he starts addressing the common people. And this is what he says. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes. Jesus Christ had a set. He was there in the midst of these scribes who could have had him killed and did have him killed. They were part of the Pharisees, the scribes, these religious uh, institutions. They were the ones who had him killed. And Jesus turns from these scribes who thought of themselves as the peak of humanity, right? And he, he, in their presence, he turns, he says, beware of these guys. Huh? This is a 33-year-old Galilean peasant, never held a political office, never got married, never wrote a book except for the Bible, which wasn't known then, but he, he, lived, he ministered for three years, roughly. You see, this, this was, Jesus Christ was a carpenter. He would have had calluses on his hands. He wouldn't have had very nice garments. He would have had sandals. He, he, was, he was, let me ask you this. Was Jesus Christ one of the high and lofty, powerful religious leaders? Or was, or was he more like one of the common people? Very common, right? Very common. Now, he spoke with authority. He spoke with power. But here he is 
he's in eyeshot of the temple this adorned these scribes are there he's already smacked them around on their understanding and their theology he turns he's sitting here in contention with them he turns to the people and he says beware of these guys and he goes on beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love and i wonder okay now this is where like you know just my you know, I'm, I'm sitting here reading this, and, I, and I'm, do you picture it in your head when you're reading? I picture it in my head when I'm reading, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm picturing this, and here, you know, the temple is somewhere off in the distance maybe, and it's a beautiful temple. And you've got these scribes here who were very powerful men. They, you know, they were, you know, transcribers of the word. They were the ones who had it. They had the understanding, right? And here he is. He says, beware of these guys. And he says, uh, who, walk, who like to walk around in long robes. I just, I just picture, I wonder if the scribes standing there, if they actually had long robes on. I guarantee you they did. I guarantee, I bet you money they did. So Jesus sitting there is like, look at these long robes. So I wonder if the scribes, as they're listening to Jesus address the people, and they're ticked off, you know. I mean, he just shattered a bunch of their theology. They're ticked off. And he's like, hey, well, they like to walk. I wonder if he was like looking back at them. You know, I would have been looking back at them, but maybe Jesus didn't like me. He's probably not. So Jesus is sitting here talking to these common people. He's like, beware of these guys who like to walk around in those. I wonder if he pointed, who like to walk around in these long robes. And I wonder if the scribes were going, what's wrong with my long robe, you know? Uh, does that make it real? Like, we, we read this book sometimes. It's like these philosophical theological ideas this is historical narrative like jesus was there he's you know there's a group that's gathered around and he's talking to these scribes he's he's uh addressing their terrible theology and there's a group of just common people who were following jesus and he's like look be, be careful of these guys they walk around like this and look at them you know this nice robe. they walk around in these long robes and what else he say he says, and they love greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feast. Man, he's just boom, bam, bam, bam. And, and they're standing there hearing him say this to other people. And, and another thing, too, that, and it's going to go on and on and on, but this was the religious system of power. You, you know, Pharisees and Sadducees and, and scribes and the religious system of the day was the governmental system of the day. So, He's like, so he's slamming part of a, a, a particular aspect of the most powerful group among his people, at least. They were rubbing elbows with the Romans, you know, uh, the, the, the Roman government, and, and they had lots of power. And here Jesus is criticizing them and, and, and correcting them. and pre You just don't do that. You don't do that. And here Jesus is doing that. And he says, they love these long greetings in the marketplace and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Think about what he just said there in the presence of these scribes. He says, these guys are a bunch of fakes. They are fakes. They pretend that they love God, and they, but, but he's already proven that they have no idea who God is, right? Did, didn't he just show that? So first, he slammed their theology. They have no idea who God is, that they think that God is the God of the dead. No, God is the God of the living. 
They, they have no clue about the coming Messiah. They have no concept of God becoming flesh and he can both be the eternal God and the Son of Man and the one who came in the flesh. They have no concept of this. And they're not worried about God anyway. All they're worried about is self-sufficiency, building themselves up, having money, having things, having clout, having uh, people sing their praises. That's what he's pointing out here. And, he, and he's sitting here talking about these people and he says, they will receive not condemnation, but the greater condemnation. That's what the Bible says. They will receive the greater condemnation. So this is an extra measure of condemnation. Now think if you're the scribe there. Think if you're the religious leader there. Think if you're the pastor and, and you know, I don't, nobody knows the heart of a megachurch pastor, but just think if you're the religious leader in a church today and you're making you know, $20 million a year, you've got your own jet, you've got $5 million line item on your budget for your clothing, and your shoes cost 20 grand, I, I, you know, whatever, this is, this seems crazy, doesn't it, but this is, you can go on YouTube and pull up pastor defending the reason he's got a jet, okay, this is our day, <laughs> this is, this is our day, now, they'll have to answer to God about that, but I'm just saying, think about how close they probably think they really are to God and here is God in the flesh saying to these people who think we are the connecting point to God and God who's become a man is standing there a carpenter's son and says not only do you not know God but you will receive the greater condemnation why is it greater? Because though they should have known God and should have blessed these people with the knowledge of God, they were feeding off of these people in order to feel like they were God. They had taken the place of God. <clears throat> so it, and it goes on to say, now it's going to, this is another reason why I don't think that we should separate the end of chapter 20 with the beginning of chapter 21 because it's connected with the, with the commonality of the widow. And I think that this is one long story. I, I, you know, the division, that's fine, whatever. But I think that this, this teaching of the widow is absolutely connected here. Because when he's, when he's talking to and in contention with the scribes, he says, beware of these scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and, and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So it's this idea of these high and lofty people who love people to give them accolades and places of honor. He says, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So he says here that these people who uh, love these high and lofty positions and want the people to exalt them and give them the places of honor. They want power. They're hungry for power and money and prestige. And part of the way that they get that is to devour widows' houses. Now, the, the odd thing, well, not odd, the irony is, is that we know that true religion is this. So the Bible says in James, what's true religion? To take care of the widows and orphans. But here, they are devouring widows' houses. And, and don't take that to think like they're devouring the house, like the, the, the location. No, when it says house, it means the whole house, like everybody, everything in it, every person in it, uh, you know, the, the, the property. Basically, they're sucking the widows' 
being dry anything that they could get from her from her children from her place from whatever they were bleeding her dry now out of this so here we have these religious people who want to be high and lofted up and the way that at least part of the way that they loft themselves up is to build their houses on the back of widows so they're sucking finances, they're sucking servitude, they're, they're, they're drawing and draining the widows, devouring widows' houses so that they might adorn themselves that much more. Now, widows don't have much, we know that. So how many widows' houses would they have to devour to get one of those emeralds on their vest or whatever it might be? So here they are, these wicked individuals who are supposed to be the ones who help you to get closer to God, dragging you down, torturing you, bleeding you dry, and trying to destroy you so that they can lift themselves up. Now, go right out of that teaching. He says, this is the greater condemnation. You can see why, right? But right out of that, Jesus looked up. Now, you see, I don't see a break here where it says he went somewhere else or, or whatever. Here it is. He's there in eye shot seemingly of the temple that's adorned very well. He's in contention with these scribes. He turns, looks at the people. He says, be, be aware of these guys over here. They may seem as if, and you know, the common people, many of them might have had contention with the scribes, but many of them would have looked at the scribes and said, oh man, if one day I can be like that right now many would have felt the squeeze and probably hated the system but many of them would aspire to be that way and jesus is saying don't aspire to be that way this is not what i'm about these guys don't know me and they don't know what i'm doing and i am not like them they are bleeding you dry and they seek to get everything from you to build up themselves but that's not what i'm about so that's what we'll get into now now let's look at the let's look at the poor widow it says, and, and it just flows right into this, it says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. Now, does the context change? Doesn't seem like it. Seems like he's still there in the same atmosphere. He's there at the, the synagogue or the temple is there, and there, there's a, some type of religious service going on. There's people putting money in a box. Now, I did a little research on this. Some, some historians think that it was a room that you would take your offering into. Some believe that it was an actual box. The wording in the ESV, it says box, but the wording here could be like a room where you took it in or, a, or maybe a box that was designated. Either way, and some think that the, the offerings were announced too. So whatever you would give, it would be announced. How about that? How about we institute that at the well here? I, I wonder if the offering would go up or the people would go down, all right? So, all right, all right, folks, Robert just dropped in a hundred. Who's going to drop in two, baby, all right? We'll start announcing. No, we're not going to do that. But in some way here, Jesus could see what was being given. Now, you know, was it announced or did he just, was he able to witness, you know, this rich man going over and dropping in a mat? You know, maybe, I bet, you know, the rich guy goes over and like, Hey, I'm about to put mine in, Ping, you know, and it was the, the sound, because that's what they wanted. They wanted to be seen, so that would be very likely, you know, that it would have been announced maybe, and the rich, it makes sense that they would have wanted it announced. Whether it was announced or whether it wouldn't, we don't really know, but what we know is it was known, whether he just saw them or whatever. So it says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. So he sees her put in these two copper coins most everybody agrees that this would have been um, just a small portion of a day's wage so whatever a day's wage is today 
Uh, think about maybe, you know, 25 cent or maybe even maybe even a couple of pennies. Just a very, very drop in the bucket compared to what uh, somebody, even an average person would make in a day's wage. So she drops in these two coins. Remember, the scribes are still there, best we can tell. And they're listening to this. And he said, verse 3, and he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For, now, just think about that. Think about all of the religious sect, the scribes, probably some Pharisees there, all these religious people, and they're dropping in this, these amounts of money, and they're getting accolades for it, attaboys for it. Obviously, people can see, maybe it's announced, whatever it is, they're dropping in this money. Are you there right now? You know, you're there. Jesus is standing there. He's, he's close enough, at least. And he taught in the synagogues often. So, we're, you know, we don't know where exactly he is, but he's in a religious setting. And there's some high and lofty rich people there who think they're the cream of the crop. He's already smacked them around a little bit theologically. He said, you think you got it, but you don't. And then, you know, it, it's still going on. He's addressing the people, and he's, he's showing the problems with these scribes over here. You see these long rows? You know, why do they wear those rows out there? They look nice. They just want people to, I wonder what the scribes are doing. Man, we've got to shut this guy up, you know. We've got to shut him up. We've got to kill this guy. And, and here he said, and, he, and then he, he looks over, and, and there's, uh, you know, people putting offerings in the box, and the commoners could put money in, the rich people could put money in. And he's like, you see these scribes right here? They think they got it all right. And they're, they're, all these rich people, all these religious people, they're dropping in these, this money. And, and, and everybody thinks, oh, man, these guys are the religious guys. And he sees this poor, homely widow. Remember, it was just said that these scribes are devouring widows' houses. So where did that money come that those rich scribes are putting into the boxes? They were stealing it from these widows. And who, who knows who else, right? And so they're taking this money, and they're dropping it in, and then comes this poor, homely widow who apparently, at least is in the group, maybe personally, had had her house devoured. I don't think you can disconnect that like that. Let's read it in context here. It's a, it's a flowing thought. He says, these scribes right here devour widows like this. And these rich people are putting in large sums of money, but these widows over here who have had their uh, goods plundered and they've been, been devoured, they're still coming. You're putting in somebody else's money who you stole. They're still coming and putting in out of their lack. The, the text says, out of their poverty. Who is responsible for making them impoverished? The scribes. And they're still coming to worship God. And it says here, so, now, going back, because the, the title is Appearances Are Often Deceptive, the, inner, the Heart Never Lies. So why would I add on the heart never lies? Because now I'll bring that into view right here, because what I think Jesus is doing in this whole section right here is he is writing wrong ideas. He is making right wrong ideas. So what he's saying is, is that it's not about the outward appearance of a thing, but it's about the inward motivation. It's about the heart. The heart never lies. Listen to the same book earlier in the book. Luke says in Luke 6, 45, he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart his mouth speaks. We know that 
it may seem as if one thing is true, but when you get up under the thing and you see, and we can't always, we can't judge the thoughts and intentions of a person's heart, can we? It's hard, it's hard for us to do that. It's impossible for us to do that. I can't look at you and, and know what's on the in, inside. I can only look at what I can see on the outside. I can get to know you, and I can discern spirits to some degree. Christians can. they got to get the discernment. But for the most part, I'm stuck in a realm of not being able to read your mind, not being able to read your thought. That's, only, that's something that only God can do. And while we look at the outward appearance of a man, God looks inward at the heart, right? But the heart can't lie. The heart can't fool God. You can put all the money in that you want to. You can go to all the services you want to. You can dress as nice as you want to. You can do all of these things, but you cannot fool God, God about the things that flow out of your heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. So we see the scribes. Those that seem most magnificent among us, they can't escape the true test. But we also see the poor widow. Those that seem most despised among us cannot be bound by this world if their heart has been made new. Those who are despised among us cannot be bound by this world if their heart has been made new. You see... The heart that she had, the widow, passed the test in her what? In her giving, her sacrifice, and her trust. Now, listen to what the text says. It says, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now, did she put in more than they did? Money? No. So what does that tell us? Let's think about this text for a second. What is he talking about? The scribes who were only outward would have said, you're crazy. That man just put in 50 shekels or whatever it might have been. That man just put in a whole bag of gold. And she dropped in two measly copper coins. Jesus, you ain't got no sense. Jesus would respond to that. That's because you are looking at the outside and not at the inside. You're looking at the outside, not at the inside. He says, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Verse 4 tells us why the little bit that she put in was more than the whole lot that they put in. He says, because, or for, this is why, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, and that's not where it stops, Put in all she had to live on. Now, I want you to think about this. I don't think Jesus minces any words, and I don't think he wastes words. What Jesus is saying here is what they gave cost them nothing. They had an overabundance. They gave out of that which didn't cost them a thing. It didn't cost them anything. It didn't hurt. It, did, it, it was meaningless. It had no meaning. They gave out of their abundance. It didn't matter whatsoever. But this lady, she didn't just give something that would make it tough. If, if words mean anything, if, if, this, if Jesus is telling the truth here, she didn't give what would make it tough. She gave, the text says, let me read it, 
the text says, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She gave it all. She gave it all. Everything that she had to live, live on, she gave it. Now, why? Why? That seems crazy. I, you know, that, even the most reasonable among you in here would say, well, that just seems foolish. She gave, she gave everything she had to live on. It doesn't make any sense. So what was the motivation of her heart? What was her true belief? You know, if, if, if the truth is, is that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, we act out of what we truly believe, do you think if she gave everything that she had left to live on, she was either suicidal or she believed that God would provide what she could not provide for herself? That she, believing in God, acted appropriately and said, I don't need this because God is going to sustain me. So out of that, we understand, and I just jotted this down, that her heart passed the test in her giving. So I see three things here. One, she gave, but lots of people give. Two, her sacrifice. Now, did the scribes give sacrificially? No, we know that. They gave out of their abundance. It wasn't sacrificially. But I don't think that's even the greatest part of her giving. She, she gave. That was one. I think that helped her pass the heart test. She was willing to give. But how did she give? She gave sacrificially. She gave sacrificially. I, I said that wrong. She, she gave sacrificially. But three, she gave out of trust. She trusted God would make a way where there seemed to be no way. None of that had anything to do with how the scribes gave. They gave in order to get accolades from other human beings. They wanted, oh man, look. So her heart passed the test in her giving and sacrifice and trust. She gave out of her poverty and she put in all she had to live on. She was relying on God. And they were building up self-sufficiency, trying to get the accolades and the glorification and the fame that would come from being great among men. This makes me think of a couple of different texts. The, so when I read of this widow giving all that she had, I think immediately of Malachi chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3, several different places in the scripture that say this, that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live. She gave everything that she had to live on because she wasn't living on the physical necessities of this world, but she was living according to faith. Let me read for you Hebrews chapter 10, verses uh, 32 through 39, and see if uh, the author of Hebrews here brings what she's thinking and the reality surrounding her position, see if it becomes more clear to you. Think about this in the poor widow giving everything that she had to live on, that she had faith that God would supply. 
verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you, have no, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls and preserve their souls. You think that might have been what the widow was thinking? Does it sound very familiar that they accepted the plunder of their things? They continued on even though they were being brutalized and tortured and stolen from. That they continued to worship God and to give to God and to, and to speak out about God even in the face of the struggle and the trying times. Well, let's move from there now and uh, we'll finish up with the temple here because I believe that this is bringing, this is where we'll see what Jesus Christ is doing. Now, to, to set this back up one second, remember where he is. He's in contention with the scribes. He's in eyeshot of the temple. He's having a conversation with the scribes in which he's destroying. He's picking apart their theology. He's proving that they don't even really know who God is. They don't know what to look for for the Messiah. For They're looking for one thing, but the one that is the true thing is standing right in front of them, the God-man, Jesus Christ. They have no idea. They're not about God anyway. They're about building themselves up and, and, and showing their self-sufficiency and looking to to, to gain glory for themselves instead of glorifying God. They're even willing to tear down and steal from poor widows and destroy and devour widows' houses in order to build themselves up even that much more. That they should be wary of these scribes. And Jesus, there contending with these scribes, turns to reveal the truth of the matter to the, the common people, to those who were there listening to him. And he says, listen, don't get thrown off by these guys you need to beware of them for they're walking around in these long rows thinking that they're something when they're nothing they have no idea who god is they're devouring widows why so that they can be thought of well they're just trying to build themselves up and they don't even praying they don't even pray to god as if they're praying to god but they throw up these pretentious prayers and long prayers so that people they're praying for people not for god so that people would look at them and say oh my how religious they are just know common people that the way you worship God is not like this as a matter of fact if you worship God like this there's greater condemnation you want to know how you actually worship God look to the poor widow who has nothing yet still she worships look at the poor widow yet uh, even though she's been devoured and stolen from and robbed and plundered she still smiles and loves God and puts in what she can puts in everything that she has even that what she has to live on why because she's not living by means of this world but the righteous live by faith that she is trusting and depending on God to carry her through now watch what he does here in verse 5 he says and while some were still speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings and so here they're in this group and and different things are going on and he's telling all of this stuff about wealth and about uh all of these people wanting this um this great 
common uh, this accolades and, and this power and this fame and the places of honor and so on and so forth. These, some people in this group were saying, look at this temple, how majestic, how beautiful. Look at all these stones. Look at all these things. And Jesus says this. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And it goes on and tons of teaching and tons of stuff. This is what I want to say. They had taken their eyes off of the prize and they had gained a false understanding of what it meant to truly know God. The temple, so many had begun, began to believe that the significance of the temple was the outward beauty. But it was about to crumble along with all of those worldly thoughts and opinions. The temple, listen, what was the temple? Now, I'm not saying that the temple was evil. The temple was given by God to be a wonderful thing, a wonderful display of what God would do in the coming Messiah, that Jesus Christ is the true temple. And the temple beforehand in the Old Covenant was made to specific patterns. We know that the Bible teaches us that the pattern by which the temple was made was in the heavenly realm. The Old Testament temple was made looking at Christ as the heavenly pattern for the foreshadowing of the coming Messiah and would be fulfilled in him as the actual object that realized what the Old Testament was pointing to. Jesus Christ is the true temple. And the temple in the Old Testament was supposed to be, I just wrote down a few, the temple was supposed to be where God dwelt among his people. It was supposed to be where God dwelt among his people, where people would be cleansed from their sin and comforted in times of need. It was where people would be interceded for, that the high priest would go before the throne. They would go into the Holy of Holies and they would make sacrifices and that they would be a benefit to the people. But here we are with the scribes and religious leaders tearing people down and devouring them and taking from them and, and shoving them down. That was not what the temple was supposed to be about. How many people did they have to rob to put those noble stones on that temple? That was never God's intention. Where people would be ministered to, not stolen from. And Jesus, I mean, think about it. Jesus is here and he's battling the religious leaders who have turned the temple into a, a religious idol. And Jesus looks at this temple and says, you see that right there? Or as a matter of fact, he's not even the one looking at it. It was those standing around who were looking at it and say, Oh, wow. Look at this. Jesus, look at this temple. Look how beautiful. Look at these stones. Look at the money that's been put into this place. And Jesus says, I'm about to tear that sucker down. Jesus said, I'm about to tear it. He, he says, not too long from now, all... As for these things that you see, this temple you see right here, as for these things you see, the days will come where there will not be one stone, one, uh, not be left here, one stone upon another. And, I, and if you'll think back to the series I did and we touched on the temple, it, it, the prophecy came true. In AD 70, uh, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And as, as a matter of fact, the Roman Empire did not leave one stone on top of the other. You know how that came to fruition and, and fulfilled? 
is that there was so much gold in the temple that they had taken from the people. And the emperor of Rome had given orders not to burn that temple because he knew if he burned that temple that the treasure would be wasted. Well, somebody lit fire to the temple, and they weren't supposed to. And when the temple burned, it got so hot that it melted the gold, and the gold ran between the stones of the temple. And so the emperor, in the days following, ordered that every stone be pried apart, one off the top of the other, so he could get the gold between the stones. So there was not one stone left on top of another. But the gold was purged from it. <laughs> Jesus goes on later to show how he is the temple. And so we see here that the temple had become a beautifully decorated tomb that sucked the life out of God's people to keep up the appearances of the elite. Was that what God had intended for the temple? Is that what the temple was? No, that wasn't what the temple was. That's what they had made it. How often in our churches today do we, even, even ourselves, let's don't look at the mega church pastors. Let's don't look at those who demand you wear a suit and tie when you come to church. Let's, don't, let's, let's set that aside. Let's look at our own selves. What prerequisites do we require that you better meet if you want to know God? What do we demand of people? If you want to come in here. Jesus said these outward things. They're not. They're of no consequence. It doesn't matter what the outside looks like. It's about what's. It's about what's on the inside. It's about what's in the heart. Like the poor widow that was willing to die. Now listen to this. What's the precedent for all of these things. And how do we get there. Because I think it's by pure human nature that we all, in our sinful nature, desire for people to think highly of us. We have to kill that. And that's something that everybody struggles with. And you might say, well, not me. I've been poor pitiful me over here in the corner. That's just, remember, that's backdoor pride. Remember, that's backdoor pride. You can be prideful by saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. Or you can be prideful by saying, don't you look, don't you look, don't you look. Because really, you know, people are looking when you say don't look. And this is the truth of the matter. It's like, you know, that, that guy that was at the eighth grade dance, and he's like got his back up on the wall, and he's like, why was he doing that? But so some girl would come over and be like, what's wrong? See, it was all about him, right? I like the definition of true humility that says, true humility does not say, uh, it does not say, think about me less. It, do, it, it doesn't think less about it. So it's not like you're saying, poor pitiful me it doesn't think less about itself it just thinks about itself less you won't even know a truly humble person's in the room i've said this many times i think it just needs to be driven in you won't even know a truly humble person's in the room because they don't say look at me they don't say don't look at me they just do what they do <laughs> so you don't even know they're there right well like the poor widow that was willing to die for the glory of god think about this jesus the true temple was willing to die for the redemption of man. You see, she was willing to lay down her life for the glory of God. Jesus Christ actually laid down his life for the redemption of man, to the glory of God. She's just, why is, why is Jesus sitting here saying, look, those who seek to glorify themselves will, will get the greater condemnation. 
Those who desire to be glorified by God will be like this poor widow. Why? Why? Because she's being conformed to the image of Christ. Because she's like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life to glorify and lift up others. Jesus Christ was counted among sinners. Jesus Christ was considered nothing. Jesus Christ laid down his life that he might glorify the Father. He lived by faith. He's the only one that's ever truly lived by faith. And through Christ, we shall live by faith. And so, Jesus coming in this sense, from this perspective, was flipping a table. You see, it was the whole precedent had been set that this is how we know who's great and what's great and what's wonderful and what's majestic is by the outward adorning, uh, the outward adorning of the thing. And Jesus says, let me upset this apple cart right quick. And he gets in the religious leaders' faces who had all the money, all the power, all the fame, and all the influence. And he says, you're a joke. You're nothing. You see that poor widow over there? She's the one that God loves. And you are a joke. You're a disappointment. You're a hypocrite. You're a fake. You're a murderer. You're a thief. You devour widows' houses. And you will pay. And he looks at the lowly and he says, you, you are the one. You are the one who is like Christ. So this week, this morning, as we examine our own heart to see where we are, what are, what are, are our motivations? Why do we do what we do? Do we do what we do so that others would think more highly of us? Do we give what we give so that we can make ourselves feel better or because we truly love God? Do we give sacrificially? And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about do you give of your time? Do you give of yourself? Do you give of your emotions? Do you give of your money? Do you give in such a way that it says to God, I want to glorify you and I'm trusting that you will take care of me because it's costing me to glorify you. God's looking at the heart, and all it is is a mirroring of. It is a, a revealing of the heart of Christ that's been placed in you. God said in Ezekiel 36, I will remove your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and obey my statutes. That Jesus Christ is dwelling inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you need to pursue after an understanding of, of what that means by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I know that some of you, that makes you uncomfortable. I get that. I know that some of you come from different churches and you're not very Pentecostal and you're like, I don't know about that. But I'm telling you now that if you would just slow down, trust me for a minute, get along with God and start to talk to God and ask God to send you the full presence of the Holy Spirit as much as you can handle, that he might change you from the inside out, that he might change your thinking, that he might change your feeling, that he might change the way that you have an outlook on life, that he might change your understanding of who you are and your identity that you would walk and this is all biblical here that you would walk according to the spirit so that you wouldn't gratify the desires of the flesh for the spirit and the flesh they're they're contradictory to one another they're opposed to one another to keep you from doing what you want to do but if you would press on and walk by the power of the spirit that you would reap life 
For those who reap according to the flesh, I mean, those who sow according to the flesh, they reap condemnation, but those who sow according to the Spirit reap life. You will live. You will live. Let's all stand to our feet. And I ask you to look to Christ today. I ask you to seek out the Holy Spirit that would lead you and guide you and take you to places that you couldn't even imagine. Be wary of the religious crowd that would draw you off into fantastic ideas about how great you can be by the outward appearance and the way that you talk, the way that you look, the money that you have, and look to Christ, who though he was King of kings and Lord of lords, became servant of all that we might know who God is. Do business with God today.